Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 161st episode of the Atlas Society Asks. I'm Lawrence Olivo, associate editor with the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit teaching young people about the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways, such as through our Atlas University seminars, graphic novels, and creative social media content. Today, we are joined by two of our senior scholars, Dr. Stephen Hicks and Dr. Richard Salzman, who will be discussing several topics relating to current events in the news today. Some of the topics that we'll be trying to cover will be the debanking of controversial fish figures, along with the recent SCOTUS decision regarding affirmative action at Harvard University. We will also try to save some time near the end for audience questions, or we'll try to sprinkle in some questions during the conversation as well. So please, no matter what platform you're on, Zoom, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Put your questions in the comment section. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Now, to start things off, I'm going to pass things over to Stephen so we can talk about the debanking of controversial figures. All right. Thanks for that, Lawrence. I'm going to put up my uh, PowerPoint. I just have one image on this topic. What I thought with your uh, uh, agreement, Richard, is uh, I would introduce this topic. You say what thoughts you want, and then we uh, go to audience participation and spend some time doing Q&A rather than saving everything for the end, and we'll just see how lively uh, lively a, a topic uh, a topic this is. I agree. So, good. It sounds good to you? Yeah, it's okay. very good. Thanks, Dave. All right. Slideshow from the beginning, just so this fills up and so on. So the context for this, this is a, a, a British uh, a, a piece of journalism that caught my attention and led me to, uh, to think about it. <laughs> involved a, a, a well-known British politician, public intellectual named uh, Nigel Farage, and you know, what his particular uh, political views are is not particularly uh, relevant here. There's a more general point that he is a controversial figure. He's been on the front line of uh, British uh, politics and, and public intellectual discussion for any number of years. And so he's got strong admirers, but then also strong detractors and, and many outright haters. And what occurred uh, uh, was that uh, his bank uh, said that they were no longer going to allow him to bank there. So they basically shut down his accounts and, uh, in effect, fired him as a as a uh, as a as a customer. And this then uh, uh, led to a great deal of discussion about what the kind of implications this has for civil society, for the nature of our public discussions, and then particularly for people who are well known public intellectuals or, of course, celebrities of various sorts, uh, if they uh, can be, in this case, debanked. Uh, if, if banks then say, we're not going to allow you to have bank accounts here, obviously that puts the person's personal finances in, uh, in disarray. So we have another uh, variation on cancel culture. Uh, cancel culture started inside the universities, uh, rather than having a liberal uh, ethos where we're going to have widespread debate and lots of different uh, viewpoints out there and uh, guest speakers and professors from all over the ideological spectrum debating and talking about everything, a movement to a deep platform or just not allow certain views and certain representatives of, of certain views to, uh, to be part of the university. And so uh, uh, in this case, this is now uh, uh, that ethos spreading to banking. Now, what makes this an issue is that in Western culture first, 
Now, a couple of hundred years ago, with the rise of early modernism as we got into the Enlightenment, there was a huge push to get uh, to uh, a position of social tolerance with respect to all of the flashpoint issues that human beings always get worked up over. Of course, these are issues we should get worked up over, religion, politics, ethics, and so forth. But uh, uh, for, for, for many centuries, of course, Europe had a tradition of great intolerance. And it wasn't just political intolerance, it was social intolerance. You're of the wrong religion, right? You are coming from the wrong family. Uh, you are uh, uh, hold political views that I find anathema. Therefore, I am not going to engage with you socially. Uh, and of course, if I have any political influence, I will try to get you <laughs> put in second or third class status politically. But it's this uh, issue of social tolerance that Western Europeans first, and this says as the Enlightenment spread as Westernism became a more global ethos, a principle of tolerance uh, with respect to most of the open to the public institutions. And so what happened over the course of the 17, 18, uh, and on into the 1900s was the idea that when we are, say, lawyers, my first question is not going to be with respect to clients, what is this person's religion or what are their political views? If I am a physician, I will treat all patients, no matter what their religion, their politics, or where they come from in, uh, in society. Uh, when we are uh, doing business uh, in the stock market, rather than saying, I'm only going to deal with other Baptists, or I'm not going to deal with uh, Muslims, Instead, I will do business with anyone. Uh, and there was this very famous quotation that became the emblem for, for this uh, from, from Voltaire. Uh, when Voltaire was in exile, he was in England and uh, you know, checking out all things uh, British and, uh, and, and widely admiring of what the British had been able to accomplish. And for a Frenchman, he was especially struck when he visited the London Stock Exchange. And what he noticed there was that even though religious hatreds had been baked into European culture for centuries, and Reformation and Counter-Reformation war uh, and all of the unpleasantness was still a live memory for uh, everybody on the European continent. You notice at the London Stock Exchange, right, people who were dissenters would be doing business with Anglicans, and they would be doing business with Catholics and doing business with Jews and doing business with Muslims. And so the idea here was we're going to, in effect, park religion at the door. This is an open, uh, liberal space for doing business. And that should then be a model for, more broadly speaking, all of our professional spaces. So lawyers should be tolerant. Physicians should be socially tolerant. In business, we should be socially tolerant. We see this as, uh, as professional sports became more prominent in the late 1800s on into the 1900s. Athletes, as part of their, uh, their, their professionalism, but then also part of their ethos, they will participate in sports with members of other nationalities, other ethnic groups, other religions. They will set aside politics at the end of the event. I will shake your hand uh, uh, and so forth. So the idea then is we want to encourage this ethos of, of, uh, of tolerance in all of the open to the public spaces where we're going to go about our business. And so what we then have is a, uh, a, a, a signal 
uh, uh, transformation or this one act then seems important because everybody is connected in uh, in banking and everybody <laughs> needs to be able to do banking to function in the modern world. And so we have a fairly prominent British bank signaling that we're getting away from this universal tolerance. We are going to inject ideology into our banking decisions. And in effect, they're sending a signal to the market. We're only going to do business with people within a certain portion of the ideological spectrum. If you're not, you are you are you are out. Now, I want to say uh, politically, I think uh, you know the the bank is perfectly within its rights to fire any customers it wants for any reason that it wants to do so. I'm not making a political point here. The question that's an interesting one is the scope of tolerance uh, that we would like to have in our kind of non-political uh, uh, social social institutions. Uh, uh, so they politically have exactly the rights to do so, but is this a good thing to do socially? Now, at the same time, you want to say, fine, uh, you know, people have some range of, of uh, uh, you know, the, where their tolerance is going to end. There are some people who are just so bad by your lights, you know, mass murderers, pedophiles, terrorists, and so forth, that if you find you're doing business with those individuals, it's quite proper to dissociate from them. And uh, in, a, in a free and open society, people should uh, 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 expect that different individuals are going to draw that line in different places. But this uh, strikes me as not simply that, because Farage, uh, in this case, is uh, within the Overton window with respect to contemporary British culture and politics. Uh, uh, and so whether uh, individuals inside the bank should then make it a matter of banking policy with respect to other British citizens in this case that we're not going to do business with this sort of person. And of course, what then that is going to mean is that other banks will then, of course, respond by saying, well, then we will open our doors, especially to people of this ideological persuasion, and then we're back to you know, different banks for different uh, members of different political parties, different banks for different religions and so forth. So drawing that line is an interesting question. Now, what I'm focusing on, though, in this case is a political response to this very interesting question about social tolerance. So here we have a British politician whose response to the Farage Institute was this, uh, in, uh, incident, rather, was to introduce a law uh, to say that what we will require of banks is that they not engage in this ideologically intolerant behavior. So banks are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of ideology. Uh, and so in this case, uh, that bank, if uh, uh, you know, it would probably be grandfathered in, but from uh, the point, if this law gets passed going forward, banks would not be allowed to take a person's ideology into account. Now, this strikes me as a problem. Uh, I think the social drawing the line place is an interesting scope of tolerance question, but I think this is uh, an inappropriate political interference with what is a cultural problem. Intolerance in this context is a cultural problem. Politics is about the use of force, and whenever possible, we do not want to try to solve cultural problems with political force. And the reasons for that are going to be, I think, rather obvious. Right? One is that if we're going to make this a law, any law is going to require enforcement. And if uh, the only way the laws can be enforced in this particular case is for politicians then to set up some sort of investigatory unit 
that makes it part of its business that anytime banks are saying yes or no to customers, saying yes or no to various kinds of deals, the, uh, the government bureaucracy has the right, indeed the obligation, to make sure that no ideological considerations went into that. And that then means we're going to have much more robust political interference in uh, banking decisions. So obviously the banking industry is already quite regulated and quite scrutinized, but it is going to be one more bureaucracy and one more level of scrutiny. And then the other thing that's the obvious point, I think, is that uh, this then is just going to turn it into a political football because what counts as appropriate or inappropriate ideological scrutiny, which ideologies are favored or not, are going to change in a democratic republic with uh, each changing of the guard in a religion. And so banks then are going to have to be changing their policies and they're going to be subject to different kinds of scrutinies and different kinds of bureaucratic decisions, depending on who the administration is in power. And I don't think we want to go down the road of turning banking even more into a political football than it already is. So I will uh, pause there, having introduced what I take to be a very interesting uh, uh, issue about tolerance politically and socially. Stephen, I just want to say briefly that I concur with your interpretation of this. I, we didn't talk ahead of time, and uh, being in the same philosophic realm, I was predicting that we might come out this way. Yeah, I'm troubled by this as well. I think it's a very disturbing trend. The whole cancel culture thing is disturbing to the extent it's targeting uh, you know, decent people, but we've talked before about, I, I have never had a problem with targeting, isolating, denouncing, you know, people of terrible views or terrible actions. And and I, I think you're right that this falls into this category of the whole cancel culture, but the idea of mandating that um, certain institutions not do this is a real problem. And it does tend to be, I don't know if we can classify it this way, it tends to, it does tend to be a a conservative response to this. Um, I think there's so many cases we saw with social media where alternatives developed. If you felt like you were being excluded from Facebook or Twitter or elsewhere, um, there are alternatives that are available possibly way more today than ever before, including in banking. So I think that's another consideration. But but even if the, even if the uh, options were limited, you, we cannot go the route of the government mandating that uh, private um, entities, you know, be forced to deal with certain people. But I like your idea of j j we really need to get back to a kind of Lockean society of the tolerance, not only of religion, but of different views. But that has to be something by persuasion mm. uh, rather than mandate. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say about that. I don't know if you have any questions, uh, Lauren. Yeah. So and this, I, I have no problem uh, with ahead of time you know, if a bank says, you know, we want to be, I don't know, the, the, the Muslim American bank. Right. And, you know, we only want to deal with uh, with Muslim cultures or we want to be the Greek American bank. We're only going to you know, do Greek business and, and cultures with Greeks right. or or right. whatever. As long as your policies right, are, are clear. Yeah. Uh, and it's not a matter of uh, intolerance, just that you want to have a, a market specialty. Right. And the you know, potential dealers know, well, if I don't fit that demographic, I'm just not going to see you as a perfective business partner. But if uh, we have an institution that's already based on essentially a liberal uh, tolerance ethos, yes. and purely for ideological reasons, we want to undercut that entire ethos. I think that's a disturbing direction for a bank to go. 
Another another aspect of this is boycotts. I mean, boycotts have been around for centuries. I think that named after a British person actually named boycott. Mm. But there are uh, the counter to that recently, which I thought was very clever, was boycotts. Uh, this happened with mm. with a company, the Goya was it Goya Beans, who who backed Trump, and then people criticized them, and then uh, backers of Trump bought more Goya Beans than they ever bought before. So the counter to the boycott was the boycott. To sure. support, to support. So these kind of things go on. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. The other thing I think of, Stephen, is you know that there are in the law uh, public accommodations and public asset access mandates, you know, at the lunch counter and stuff like that. But they're based on if you open up a if you open up to yourself to the public. Supreme Court ruled on this recently, actually, with a web designer who said, "Well, I I, I will design websites, but I don't want to design websites for LGBT community." And and the the left criticized that on the grounds that you're supposed to be open to everybody, even if it violates your your principles. And the Supreme Court said, no, the web designer has a right to reject. And I think that was the right decision. But notice the category is never you have a right to reject, you know, based on the ideology of the customer. It's usually based on race and other things. So so from the other side, there is another group saying you must serve customers. You know, that tends to be the left. And so they have a getting consistent position as well. Um, but at least it's limited to things like race and and other seemingly non-essential aspects. Mm. I don't know what you think. Of, what do you think of that? The public accommodation mandates. Would we get rid of those as well? Um, uh, I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Yeah. If you're going to be open to the public. Yeah. You still have the right to say how open to the public and which sections of the public you're yeah. interested in being open right. to. Right. You're not so really open. To I have no problem with, uh, you know, you know, colleges being open to the public, but we're going to be a women's only college. Or yeah, right. Only yeah. College, right. Or yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm offering a housing space, but only for people over 65 who are <laughs> retirees. Right. Or right, this right. is only for kids. So, you know, all of those ages, you see, as long as you're, you're clear about what your principles are, go for it. Now, it might be that behind that, the person has an irrational or immoral reason for doing so. Yes. But uh, uh, that's something you will criticize morally, not politically. Right, I totally agree. Yeah. So uh, are there, do, do we uh, spark any questions, Lawrence, I'm wondering, or comments from our participants? Yes, we've gotten uh, a good number of questions from Facebook and YouTube. So I've pulled a couple of them over. So we'll try to go through uh, some now. Any that we don't get to now, we can always come back to closer to the end. Uh, the first one here comes from Wyatt516 on YouTube asking, aren't aren't banks under some level of duress with DEI and ESG policies in deciding which customers are too extreme for them mm -hmm. to be working with. Richard, you've uh, done a whole talk about ESG in the past. So the, so the 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 active verb there was duress. Yeah. Does that just mean like social pressure, or does that mean uh, political pressure, or something in the middle that if you're going to get certification from some uh, important board in your industry, you have to abide by certain regulations. I'm not. I need a little more clarity on the duress part. Well, hopefully uh, well, I can provide that, but I, I think probably where that is just coming from, maybe duress isn't really the word, but it mm. does seem that certain companies want to have that ESG rating or that higher score. This is something that we can see online on, on websites. Like if you 
get a higher score based on these ratings, it will help you when it comes to this uh, stakeholders. They'll right. they'll be more inclined yeah. to support your company. Right. So then I would say there's there's going to be a, a just a two front uh, discussion that could and should go be going on. What is going to be with respect to a bank, uh, if we take the bank in this case here, if there is some sort of ESG uh, rating agency, let's say it's not a government right now, and it wants to be able to, uh, uh, it would like to rather to have that ESG stamp on its on its resume, so to speak, then it has to make a business decision about whether it is principled enough to say, we don't agree with that rating agency's principle, so we're going to fight back, or we're not committed to our principle in this case enough, strongly enough, we would rather have the ESG. So that would be an internal discussion for the bank to, uh, to go on. And the other level of discussion is going to be inside the ESG certifying agency. Uh, where is it going to draw its lines about you know, its particular Overton window, by which I mean how it defines the range of acceptable opinion? And uh, if we are uh, going to be in a liberal, open international culture, it should be a pretty wide window. Uh, uh, and uh, 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 we should probably just reserve outside the window for clearly uh, uh, criminal and, and extreme cases of criminality. Great. Uh, I will just sort of tack on why it did respond that he's referring to political and social pressure. This seems to be more in regards to what he's saying is we saw this happen with social media companies. Now, mm -hmm. this might be more in reference to sort of the Twitter files where it sounded like government was sort of actively kind of pressuring social media to take certain actions. But I guess right. the question would be, are banks having that sort of pressure impressed on them i don't know if there's been evidence to prove that yeah i i don't know i would be surprised if it's not happening <laughs> uh given the degree of oversight and regulation and uh uh behind closed door conversations that go on between government officials and and members of the uh, of the banking industry but uh just on, on general principles political pressure of that sort i think is uh, is immoral and should be illegal I'd like, I'd like to just make a quick observation that the clarity that Stephen brought to this when he, well, just right there, where he said, we're distinguishing between, is it moral? Should it be illegal? Is it political? Is it social? I think one of the great tragedies of what we call the mixed system that we have today, uh, not pure liberty, not pure statism, but a mix, is it clouds these kind of issues. If we we're able to do as we're doing here, but it's not commonly endorsed, be able to say, well, this is a private institution, that's a public institution. Government should be forbidden to do this, but private in, uh, institutions should be able to. When you say that to people, it strikes them the wrong way. They think you mean private institutions might be discriminatory, exclusive, irrational, and effectively, although we advocate rationality, we're effectively saying, yes, people should be free to be irrational and let others boycott them, deal with them, not deal with them. And that rubs people the wrong way. But, but I think the main difficulty is uh, people do blur these two realms. They don't think of these two realms as distinct as we do. I think of this often comes up in cases of public education. You know, there'll be disputes over whether to teach um, 
evolution or uh, intelligent design or some kind of religious conception. And the fights go on and on and on. And when you back up, you realize, well, these are philosophic fights, but they're also a fight because there's a singular curriculum mandated by the government. And if there were not public schools, then people would go their separate ways and develop different schools and there wouldn't be a lot of fighting. So mm -hmm. I just want to make this observation to back off a little bit, you know, 30,000 feet and say, why are these disputes uh, seemingly unresolvable? I think part of it is because we have a mixed system of, of freedom and controls. Mm -hmm. And while yeah, everyone dislikes the politicization of it, they're not, in many cases, willing to give up on the politicization for the, exactly <laughs> the reason you were talking mm. about in the banking, the discrimination case, right? Mm. The uh, strong religious uh, uh, intelligent design people then say, well, yeah. If we back away from the uh, political fight, then that means in the so-called free market of education, uh, evolution is going to have free reign right. and, and people will get hot. And then the people who uh, think evolution is uh, scientific and uh, creationism is ridiculous, or, well, that then means people are going to be free to uh, indoctrinate their kids in uh, creation. Right. So yeah. we have to be political about it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, Stephen, also you mentioned that, you know, if the culture just generally is in decline regarding um toleration um I, I think another aspect of this is if if it's true you know postmodernism books suggest this a decline in respect for just objectivity and persuasion and rationality and convincing mm. generally these kind of tactics canceling debanking isolating but uh, strike me as more intimidative mm. you know it's mm. like i can't win the argument therefore i'm going to starve you I'm going to mm -hmm. cut you off from your financing. I'm, you know what I mean? It's It strikes me as a more intimidating, although not mm -hmm. strictly physicalist. It's not strictly, you know, uh, shackling people. But um, I don't know. What do you think about that? You know, it's not no, really, it, it's not really an argument. Right. That's exactly right. To the extent uh, postmodernism and other uh, close, close intellectual movements have had an influence on education, and then on the more broadened code, it does mean a coarsening of the discourse. Because if you think, you know, there is no such thing as truth and objectivity or rationality, then you're going to have a whole generation of people who don't try very hard <laughs> to seek truth, to be objective, to be rational and so forth. So they're not going to be as good at it, which means when we have contentious issues, uh, they're going to then be more easily frustrated and more likely to resort to course and semi-physicalistic responses yeah the trend also in the corporate realm uh, i think it was in 2019 that the conference board a major corporate board said we uh, really are against the idea of exclusively pursuing profit and the maximization of shareholder value so the whole stakeholder model the idea that we should be serving things other than the owners an array of special interest groups. So, so it's no longer the case that there are these two realms, namely ideological, academic, uh, you know, the intellectual versus the business world. The, mm. the two have melded now so that the CEO might well conclude and the CEO suite might well conclude, well, uh, if we exclude the uh, these people from our banking relationships, uh, it may actually hurt us commercially. Mm. Uh, but that's okay because that's not our main priority. So I think that's making it easier for these companies also to cave to pressure. I mean, companies have always caved to pressure, but but I think they seem they feel more warranted in caving because they've been told for years by in law schools and business schools and elsewhere 
that money-making and the bottom line, namely all we cared about is the color of green, not any other issue, that's mm. no longer the case. So, th so they're prone now to these kind of pressures. And I think the, the critics know this. Mm. So, so the debank, you see what I'm saying? That that's oh, just yeah. not starting. All right. Well, uh, we're going to switch over to Richard's topic next, but I do want to get in this one last question, which, uh, Stephen, you already kind of partially answered, but I thought I'd bring it up here. This is from Candace Morena on Facebook, who asked, how do you respond to people saying we cannot be tolerant of intolerance? Mm. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> and I think immediately one has to make a distinction between tolerance uh, in a political way and tolerance in a social realm. Uh, political tolerance, when that concept became important in the 1600s and on into the 1700s, particularly in our battles over religion, meant that we're no longer uh, going to have religions trying to use the state to impose their religious views, or we're not going to have the state or the government using religion to try to um, get its political way. We're going to separate those two. And that then means that the government needs to be universally tolerant with respect to anything uh, with respect to uh, to religion. That is to say, we're not going to use political force on, on those issues. And then that gets extended to commercial areas, to other walks of life as well. Now, social tolerance uh, means uh, uh, that you are going to put up with and part and parcel of having a liberal kind of open democratic Republican society is People are going to have lots of freedoms, and when you give people lots of freedoms, they're going to believe all sorts of things, and they're going to adopt all sorts of lifestyle choices, and that means built into uh, that sort of open society is a necessity that most people have a strong dose of tolerance. Uh, otherwise, you are saying, we're not going to have, uh, a, have a society. I'm only going to deal with people uh, who I exactly agree with on everything 100%. Everyone else, I'm going to be uh, adversarial with respect to, and that's just not going to not going to function. So, uh, what I want to say is, absolutely, we should be intolerant of intolerance among our government officials. Their job is to be neutral with respect to any 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 uh, any uh, any uh, uh, particular demographic or any particular view in society. But when it comes to tolerance uh, uh, and intolerance in society, we have to have a wide scope of tolerance. And that includes uh, being tolerant of people who, as long as they are behaving in a, uh, on a social issue, are themselves in, intolerant. So if in a society there are people who say, I have my religion, I hate members of all other religions, and I'm only going to deal with my members of my religion. That's a very intolerant person. The rest of us nonetheless need to tolerate that person. That person is not uh, using political means. In fact, is just isolating himself or herself from the rest of society. Uh, so yes, yeah, so there's going to be a lot of tolerance of the intolerant on social issues, but zero tolerance for intolerance among our government officials. Okay, perfect. And now I see we're a little bit over the halfway mark now. So we're going to transition over to Richard's topic. Now, Richard, there's been a few things that have been shaken up now with the Supreme Court. There's still a tussle with, I know, student loans. But you specifically today wanted to talk about what it comes to affirmative action. So please take it away. 
I did. Thank you very much. And the case here, which was decided, uh, the ruling came down at the end of June, is Students for Fair Admissions. That's the group. That's the plaintiff versus Harvard. There's a, an, a similar case versus UNC. Uh, the main difference being Harvard's a private institution and UNC is a public school. Also, uh, Jackson, the most recent appointment to the bench, uh, recused herself from Har the Harvard case because she went to Harvard. Now, uh, that's the only reason they were split up, but basically the decision, which is against affirmative action in college admissions at these two schools. Now, and I don't know if that's narrow enough for you, but the way these things are written, the implication is this is a broader ruling against affirmative action generally. It's a complete reversal of precedent. So it's very, very important. And I think I think it's good news, but it's a mixed opinion. I just want to tell you why it's mixed and why we should uh, pay attention to it for the good and bad elements of it. But it's a six to three in the case of UNC, six to three, and in the case of Harvard, six to two decision, mostly by conservative versus uh, non-conservative, I hate to call them liberals, but on the side of rejecting uh admissions policy being race-based is uh roberts and thomas clarence thomas alito kavanaugh gorsuch and barrett uh the three against were sotomayor kagan and jackson now i just want to say this case began in 2014 that's how long it takes some of these to work their way through mm -hmm. and uh so that's what seven or eight years and hearing that i thought I wonder what the makeup of the Supreme Court was back in 2014. Of course, this is pre-Trump, and Trump got three nominees on the court, and three of these nominees just in, uh, contributed to this decision. So the fact is, this decision would not have come down if it was decided uh, in 2014, 15, or 16 before he got elected, which is itself kind of interesting. Elections have consequences. Presidential picks on the Supreme Court have consequences. Um, the three that he put on the court voted in this way. So the vote would have gone three, six instead of six, three, eight years ago. That's just as context. Now here was the contention of the plaintiffs. And by the way, there were about a hundred amicus briefs filed. Those are uh, friends of the court briefs. One third of them were for the plaintiffs saying, get rid of affirmative action and admissions. But interestingly, two thirds of them uh, were against, were for keeping it as is. One of the main um, economists doing the field work and the data work on this was from Duke, uh, who I know the professor. And interestingly, on the other side, a professor from uh, Berkeley uh, looking at data. Now, what was the contention? The contention is largely that because Harvard uh, tries to create a student mix, which is not just grade-based or letter recommendation-based, or extracurricular activity-based, those are some of the criteria used in admissions, but race-based and what they call personality-based, the argument was if they mostly went on academic credentials, then there would be far more Asians accepted into Harvard and UNC and generally other schools than there are now. So the major claim was that Asians were being discriminated against. And this is interesting and different from prior cases, and I'll go through some prior cases on it, uh, affirmative action uh, in admissions policies, but all prior challenges were from white people. And so they were, it was rejected on the grounds in prior cases, partially rejected on the grounds that whites have nothing to complain about. I think there was actually some 
uh, traction here and purchase because they were Asians complaining. Now, Harvard's response is we don't only go by scores. And we do want a diversity of um, students on campus, and that should be our prerogative. And race, they admit race is one of their considerations. So they would take in more, they admit, take in more Blacks and Latinos, all else equal, than they would Asians. But their view is that's only one of, you know, four or five different criteria. The court basically said this violates this procedure having race anything to do with admissions violates the 14th Amendment. Uh, so that's a constitutional violation, certainly something the Supreme Court should opine on. But also they cited Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Now, the 14th Amendment, if you look at it, doesn't actually refer to race. The 14th Amendment is the one of the three um, post-Civil War amendments, and the basically the 13th, 14th, and 15th. The 13th basically gets rid of slavery. The 14th says um, every citizen, every person, doesn't mention color, shall uh, receive equal protection before the law. So you can't discriminate against anybody. And the 15th Amendment gives the right to vote, or basically says the right to vote cannot be uh, prevented to, now if this does mention color, um, based on color of the skin and race. That's in the 15th Amendment. That's not what's been cited here. It's the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment simply says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of the laws. So, um, and here's the language, by the way, of the 64 Act. No person, this is crucial to government funding, no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in or be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, unquote. Now, if you, uh, those of you not familiar with the 64 Civil Rights Act, it was basically passed because the South was still persisting in discrimination, in voting, and various other things. But it enshrined, unfortunately, affirmative action. It, it permitted uh, a kind of conscious, even though this provision is in there, that's just for funding. If you get funding from the government, you can't use race. But it also has racial quotas kind of built into it and permit, permits it. So the affirmative action has been on the table, so to speak, allowed, endorsed, as a remedy. Now, to the extent it's restitution, it's an act of justice, if you could really prove that it was remedying past uh, uh, evils like slavery, uh, maybe you can make a case for it. But the argument is you have current people being penalized for the sins uh, of their ancestors, which is unjust. Now, this came up in 1970, just to give you context for this and what the Supreme Court has overthrown and why it's so huge. And I'll talk about the implications for other areas. In 1978, a medical school admissions uh, application from a guy named Alan Bakke to the medical school at Berkeley was rejected. And he learned that it was on the grounds that he was white, that, the, that there were racial quotas. There were only 100 students taken in that year. And he found out that there were racial quotas requiring that some of the ad admitted be black. And their scores were inferior to his. Now, he went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court 
is, is known for this, not being very principled about it. They struck down the particular method used by Berkeley, but they did not strike down affirmative action generally. So that's so they kind of split the baby on that. That was Justice Powell. Powell was a Nixon appointee. So there was the Powell court headed by a Republican nominee. That's what the decision was in Bakke, B-E-K-K-E. Now, fast forward, very interestingly, 2003, another major affirmative action case. And again, this is strictly having to do with college admissions. This time it was the University of Michigan Law School. And this time the majority opinion was by Sandra Day O'Connor. Sandra Day O'Connor was a Reagan appointee. So another Republican appointee uh, in 2003. And a similar kind of deal was struck that the particular technique used by Michigan was wrong, but affirmative action itself was still okay. So you see the precedent's rolling on and it's moving on and it's still there. But interestingly, interestingly, Sandra Day O'Connor in that opinion said the following, we expect that 25 years from now, (laughs) the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest uh, in student body diversity that we've approved today, unquote. Isn't that interesting? Here she is kind of admitting this isn't really right. And I'm hoping we grow out of this. <laughs> but I'm not, uh, but we're not going to do it now. We don't have enough. We either don't have enough support or we don't have enough contact. So, uh, well, 25 years after that would have been 2028. Here we are five years earlier than this. And lo and behold, it really has been struck down and out. Now, uh part of the problem I think here, part of the defect in this is um it's it's something Stephen and I were talking about in the prior segment. If technically in a free society, if a school uh wants to discriminate, e- even if it's an irrational form of discrimination, as I would consider race and other non-essentials to be, they are free to do so. But we don't have that system today. We have a mixed system today where the government feels the need either to condemn or not condemn these procedures and do the hair splitting. Um, even Roberts, in his majority opinion, said something like, uh, well, it isn't as though race cannot be brought up in admissions, but it should be brought up in the essay written by the student. And the student should be now he's telling the student how to write their admissions letter is crazy. That's right in the decision. But they should show how race has challenged them and has made them, you know, fit to be a diverse citizen on campus. In many ways, it goes, this decision goes too far and kind of micromanages what the admissions policies and procedures should be. Uh, Nevertheless, I I just want to let you know that that this is how the decision came out. And as to the reaction of this, obviously, Harvard and UNC objected, but they said they would follow they would follow the ruling as to how they'll implement the ruling. Letters went out to, I don't know, 150 colleges from the winner, the legal firm and the special interest group that won this, you know, pressing the case, uh, reminding them they should change their policies. I, I, I don't think they're going to go the route of, you know, having the admissions documents not mention your gender, your sex, your race. I mean, to the extent that's still on the admissions, I don't know if that will lead to that. So it's truly colorblind, but the dissent in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, Jackson, Sotomayor, and Kagan, all of them said the colorblind approach is impossible. The court is going back on decades of social justice. You know, you could imagine the kind of arguments they were using. 
I think I think it's ironic because at least in the case of Sotomayor and Jackson, they were both both basically the presidents that nominated them. The presidents named affirmative action as a reason to put them on the court. In the case of Sotomayor, a Latino woman. In the case of Jackson, a black woman. This is not my interpretation or conspiracy theory about it. This is what these presidents said, I think, in the first case, Clinton. Secondly, in the case, Biden. So um, my interpretation of this is I am glad to see this, especially in a context of the last few years where we've had CRT, uh, critical race theory, arguing that America is systemically racist, systemically meaning it's it's embedded in its institutions and laws and constitution. And I don't think that's true. So I think that's been a kind of smear on the American system. And I think the Supreme Court in deciding this way is basically saying, well, if there's any systemic racism, this certainly would be an example of it. What used to be called reverse racism, affirmative action. In, in Ayn Rand's famous essay on racism, which is in the virtue of selfishness, you might want to revisit this, uh, written in 1964, around the time and written because the Civil Rights Act was being proposed, and the March on Washington occurred in 1963. She specifically addresses affirmative action. She doesn't call it affirmative action, but in the tail end of that essay, she gets some very interesting pages on what she calls racial quotas, of which is effectively affirmative action. And you know, you can imagine her view, the consistent philosophic view, you do not fight racism with racism. And she specifically refers to the great virtue of being colorblind. And uh, so it's a very nice passage, a very nice essay. I think I'll leave it at this, Perhaps the most uh, interesting follow-up applications of this will be, uh, will it go beyond Harvard and UNC? I think the argument is yes, it will go on to other colleges. Will it go beyond the universities into corporate and other institutions? Namely, can affirmative action programs in corporate hiring and corporate promotion in, in a whole bunch of other areas, not just corporate? But, but here we have the academic life, but what about the commercial life and other life? Is, is the Supreme Court going to use this? Is, is this strong enough and principled enough and broad-based enough to eventually apply across the board? Um, I, I hope it does, but my main, my main concern is that we're still mandating that private entities act in a certain way, and I'm uncomfortable with that. But that's just what we talked about the first segment, Stephen, right? Mm. I'll, stop, I'll stop there. Okay, well, that's perfect. I uh, want to have just a couple of uh, comments on this issue here. Uh, after the uh, Supreme Court decision was announced, there was a, a, a major national survey done of Americans' attitudes with respect to race. And so all of this issue, right, you mentioned CRT about uh, basically everybody is a racist and racism is baked, baked into yeah. the system and the institutions and so on. I found this very encouraging this uh, question was put to, do you approve or disapprove of the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action? And uh, uh, it didn't matter what race, what gender, uh, there was a majority uh, of Americans who were in favor of the decision, in effect, arguing that uh, the Supreme Court, in in this case, its principles are in alignment with what's going on in the general culture. Uh, even uh, 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 racial and ethnic minority groups, a majority of the members of those groups are opposed to race-based affirmative action. So in that sense, it's a sign of a healthy culture that at least on the 
on the uh, the non-political elements, we are making we're making good progress as well. Stephen, before you leave yeah. that, notice the age breakout though on the very yes, top. That's strongly approve. Yeah, uh, the older people approve of it more than the younger people. Yeah. That's just that is interesting. Yep, yeah, that's right. And uh, also, level of education is going to be a, yeah. a factor there as well. Okay, yeah. so. Uh, culturally, it's going to be an ongoing issue, but it seems like the, uh, we're moving in the right the right direction. Now, this is the the general population. It's one other thing I wanted to mention was that the New York Times uh, published a long article in the wake of the uh, Supreme Court decision, disagreeing with it yeah. significantly. And there was one very important, uh, interesting feature about it. Someone went through and did a word count of how many times Asians were mentioned, how many times whites were mentioned, how many times uh, Latinos were mentioned, how many times Black uh, Americans were mentioned. And in the entire article, um, uh, Asians were almost not mentioned at all. <laughs> wow. uh, whereas uh, there were a dozen or more mentions of Latinos and even more mentions of Blacks and a few mentions of, of whites. So what's interesting is that even though this was a Supreme Court case, and the primary issue is whether this leading institution is discriminating against Asian Americans yes. or not. Yeah. The New York Times is not addressing that particular issue. Instead, it is pivoting to a discussion of Latinos uh, or Hispanics, but then to a much greater degree, Black Americans. And then this then I think is indicative of a certain mindset of what we, you know, when we start thinking about left liberal uh, progressive mindset that uh, and this is where we have to start doing some interpretation here. If yeah. you're not addressing what is the central issue of the case, but uh, focusing on something else, that something else is what's really on your mind. And what this indicates to me as one possible hypothesis is that for those who are in favor of affirmative action, they are not opposed to discrimination. Right? Even though there's lots of I'm against discrimination language, but they are fine with the discriminations if it is against whites. As you mentioned, the Baki case, uh, UC Davis versus Baki, yeah. 1978. Yeah. Uh, that was fine from this perspective. In the case yeah. of the University of Michigan Law School, right. that was a white plaintiff. So the discrimination was fine right. in that case. Good and point. in this case, uh, Asians were clearly being discriminated against. Nobody argued that they were not. That is fine. So if it's not racial discrimination that is driving the thinking on those who are in favor of affirmative action, what is? And I think what we then have to say is that the affirmative action is intended to target groups that may or may not be racial groups, but are still at the low end of various social spectrum. And yep. that we are fine with treating people as members of a group not as individuals who are going to get in on their on uh, on according to their merits. So there is a collectivism that right. is driving this whole thing. But we are fine with sacrificing members of the stronger group if we think that's necessary to benefit the weaker group. And that is a textbook form of altruism. We sacrifice the stronger, the better off, those who have been successful. And from this perspective, whites and Asians have been very successful. So it's okay to sacrifice them if it is for the benefit of a perceived to be weaker group. So it strikes me that uh, it's accidental in the thinking here, the racial issue, that what's really driving this is a kind of collectivism, 
and a kind of altruism in the direction of just elevating any uh, group that you think is not doing very well to a more equal status. That's the, uh, that, that's the issue and not so much racism. I think that's an excellent point, Stephen. And uh, the the data on, you hate to group these people by race the way it's done, but the performance of the Asian population has just been fantastic, higher income, higher education, yeah. real great work ethic, family, coherence, all that kind of thing. And you're right, it's so that they are not, that doesn't fit the narrative of um, a group that seems to have been victimized but certainly it's a race. And if America is systemically racist, why aren't they also racist against Asians? They seem not to be. So it goes unmentioned by the New York Times. That's a really good point because the case was so distinctly about that group. And then not to mention that group kind of is a litmus test of what you're focusing on. Right. Uh, and there's also a kind of related issues that if it's about, you mentioned earlier, reparations or some sort of historical justice. Yes. The kind of amnesia at work here, because clearly yeah. Asians as a group have suffered yeah. all sorts of discrimination yes. in American history. Yes. But none of that counts. Right. Uh, and then right. gets set aside. So for some reason, those who are in the so-called progressive category, there's, there's a historical amnesia there or dismissing of that history. But also, they don't feel guilty about the discrimination with respect to Asians in a way they feel guilty with respect to other groups. Right. And that asymmetry is also interesting. The why the guilt is uh, one-sided and not <laughs> more general. There's a tangential aspect to this. I don't think it's a, it's a secondary issue, but I think it's still worth mentioning. Uh, this comes up a lot. It's worth noting. It, it is really quite an injustice to have this kind of system to the extent when some favored privileged group does well or someone in that group does well, there's a question in the general public as to whether they earned it or not. Mm. And that's always a kind of hung over the head of anyone who uh, is in these favored groups. So they achieve something, achieve something on their own, but their achievement is somewhat clouded by the suspicion people have, wait a minute, did you get that job because of affirmative action? Um, so I'm hoping that to the extent affirmative action fades away or moves away, there's less of that, at least. Yeah. By the, by the way, you mentioned reparations. I found in my research that some groups are starting to suspect that this might be applied to reparations movement and uh, squelching it, by the way, uh, squelching mm -hmm. it, like preventing, because that's obviously picking up steam as well. But yeah. that you know, they, these principles could be used to bar reparations, um, uh, the reparations movement, gentlemen. All right. Perfect. Thank you for that, Richard. Now we're coming down here to the last four minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. I do want to try to get to at least uh, one other question, maybe two, if we have the time. This first one, Richard, this comes from Alex Morena on Facebook, who asks, what do you think Harvard's next, next steps will be? He kind of touched on this, but he asked, will they try to find another loophole to try to attempt affirmative action? Or might President Biden try to push something through executive order like he's trying to do with student loans? Yes, I think there are already steps being taken to sidestep this, to reword things, to do it in a different way. But it will be difficult to do. But but one one response I, I noticed, I think this was in the law school and not only at Harvard, I think it was done at Yale as well. Now, get this. If you think, well, the way they got this data is they gathered SAT and LSAT scores and showed that the Asians did better. So what do you think Harvard's response would be? Uh, you don't have to submit test scores anymore. 
<laughs> so it's just, you know, it, it's 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 a way to get around it so that, well, if the test score data aren't there, uh, of course, that would make it, I think, even harder for Harvard to know who they're taking in. But if they go that route and there was some suggestion that they'll go that route, you know, to me, that just lowers standards further for the furtherance of this uh, racist angle on their part. It's it's mind boggling, but perhaps not surprising. Thoughts, Stephen? I, they seem to want to evade it without being illegal. Yeah. They're not going to lose funding over this, right? If they continue to have quotas, uh, I doubt they would face the loss of funding. But have you seen any other responses other than this kind of resistance? Of No, we just know in general principles, uh, universities have lots of clever people and they have lots of clever <laughs> lawyers, so they will, <laughs> uh -huh. right. uh, according to their ideological presuppositions, uh, mm. they can to try multiple variations. Which is, you know, it, it comes back to our, our 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 constant refrain, which is that the, this really is a philosophical issue. Uh, are we thinking of people as individuals? Uh, do we believe in merit? Do we believe in achievement? Do we believe that uh, yeah. uh, there should be uh, standards of uh, colorblind justice and objectivity as possible? If we have a widespread culture of that, yeah. affirmative action will go away and we'll have a healthier culture for it. If not, we'll carry on the way we've been going. All yeah, right. I, saw, I saw a couple of like hysterical react kind of catastrophic reactions of uh, well what will uh you know black students do now mm. okay well they might not go to harvard but that doesn't mean they don't go to college so part of and did you know Stephen? we know part of the success in college is being in the right college being in the right university mm. and uh meaning we want you to succeed we don't want you to fail if we can prevent you know you know if you do it on your own that's one thing but but to put people in a position based on race or other non-academic, non-meritorious reasons sets them up for failure. You know, so so if a if a student's going to succeed at Indiana State and have a good career versus he goes to Harvard because Harvard's supposed to give him a bigger credential, but he does badly at Harvard. His grades are either bad or he flunks out. What good does it do him mm -hmm. to have got to have gotten into Harvard? So I, I don't know if that'll change. Yeah. Okay, well, we have officially hit the top of the hour. So this has been really interesting to hear you both talk. So thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you so much, Richard. I hope oh. everyone who was watching this uh, enjoyed the conversation as well. I know a lot of people had questions. We didn't get to all of them. But if you liked what we did today, we do these webinars every week with either our scholars or with interesting guests. And if you want to see more content like this, please let us know or don't be a freeloader and help us with a tax deductible donation. Mm -hmm. So next week, be sure to join us when the founding partner of Finance Technologies, Ed Dowd, will be joining our CEO, Jennifer Grossman, to talk about his latest book, Cause Unknown, the Epidemic of Sudden Deaths in 2021 and 2022. Again, Stephen, uh, Richard, thank you so much for joining us and everyone else. Thanks, guys. They're good questions. Too bad we didn't get to more of them. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you, Stephen. Maybe Enjoy next it. time. Take care, yeah. everyone. Bye-bye.